Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Bouchard, host of the Night Stalker podcast. This is episode 19, entitled, Is the Gone Girl Really Gone? For most of you, the book or movie titled The Gone Girl is something pretty familiar. Uh, The book, I believe came out in 2012, the movie in 2014, which was a, the movie was a, uh, an adaption of the book. The What they don't tell you, even when you look at the Wikipedia and all of these things, is that the, the book is actually a runoff, kind of a runoff of the disappearance of Joan Risch from Lincoln, her home in Lincoln, uh, Massachusetts uh, on October 24th, 1961. Episode 1 dealt with the case and some of the uh, particular uh, points of the case. Uh, So far, it's probably had the most views uh, than a lot of the other ones that we have gone over. A lot of the ones we have gone over had a lot of hits, but this one just had an exceptional amount of hits. Um, it's interesting because being the writer of The Disappearance of Joan Risch and having access to outside sources and the police department's 5,127-page uh, report, the 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 facts pertaining to the case, the physical evidence pertaining to the case, witnesses' statements pertaining to the case, um, completely makes you look at things different than the movie and the book. Um, like they say, that's Hollywood. And in this case, the movie was ho- uh, Hollywood. I watched the movie, I thought it was pretty, I, I wasn't entertained by it at all, I think maybe that was because I, I had real first-hand knowledge of the case, and uh, photographs, and uh, other information that a normal person watching TV or in the movies didn't have, um, so yeah, I really didn't think too much of neither the book or the movie, but that's, you know, I'm not a very big TV guy or myself, so, but what surrounds the case is really, the gone girl, is she a victim, or was this the scene staged? There seems to be a a 50-50 split, Uh, sometimes when I poll, it'll be 50-50, or just about in in that area, um, there are people that like to believe that, uh, well, I like to believe it in, you know, thriller, suspense type of stories and others that are more factual based that um, really don't, you know, believe in the, the thriller hocus pocus. But if you really look at the Joan Rush case, and, and again, like the other many of the other episodes I've done on missing people or 
homicides, people seem to, especially online during the podcasts, and this isn't knocking anybody, but it just needs, it's, it's a, um, caveat emptar, fire beware, when you're listening to certain podcasts and, um, reading articles and this and that, because a lot of the information put in about these cases are bolstered to either fill up space or time on the show to cause a an illusion of drama that might not be present, or to sell books or fill up lecture halls or whatever have you. In Joan's case, one of the a couple of the big let's go over let's say pick out we'll pick out three of the the more defining factors for people that are doing podcasts in this. One is the the blood smeared kitchen. Now at first sight if you saw that does it look like a a tragic or a heinous crime had happened there? Of course it does. However, when you really look at it you look at it through my eyes, somebody that's been in a law enforcement field for 30 years, somebody that's been involved in archaeology for 32 years, what I see and what the average person sitting watching a TV set or listening to a podcast is totally different. So, although the crime scene there itself looked at like it was, there was a lot of blood loss, there was a lot of this, there was a lot of that. In reality, there was only uh, 240 uh, milliliters of blood collected off the floor by the uh, State Police Forensic Lab. What that equates to is about a half a pint of blood, which in no way would cause you to go into trauma, shock, or any other, any type of critical medical condition, okay? So you got to first understand that. Look at the dynamics. You can, you can go to the, the Wikipedia and other places and find the pictures. Look at the dynamics of the, the blood. It's not one or two consecutive movements. It's a variable of pooling moving left, moving forward, moving backwards, going sideways. It's like going north, south, east, and west, which is not normally, not normally, does not normally happen in the crime scene. Then we have the unexplained part of it. So, based on the pictures of the kitchen, you find heavy pooling, Somewhere in the, let's use the middle of the floor. Well, here's the problem. If that was the initial point of, let's say, impact, assault, whatever you want to call it, you notice there's no real high impact or blood splatter on any of the uh, white cabinets white refrigerator, anything surrounding, anything surrounding the area. Well, so you can say, well, Mike, you know what? She was stabbed. 
all right, let's let's go let's let's go on to that. Okay, so let's say she was stabbed. So we have all this bleeding, but upstairs in the bedroom, there's only a few drops found, and that's it. Well, here's the problem. If that is that would be, have to be the initial point of contact in the in the living room. I mean, in the kitchen. Why would all of a sudden she stop bleeding when she's trying to walk up a set of stairs, which would elevate your blood pressure, which would pump more blood out, which would cause more blood, but but it lacks that. There, there's absolutely none. There's little drops, droplets. What I did pick up, which neither the, the state or the FBI picked up, was if you look under a really high-powered microscope at the pictures themselves, there's blood splatter on one of, near one of the doorknobs up in the bedroom. It's a high, it, it resembles a high velocity impact blood spatter. However, here's the problem. When blood hits, you have what's called a trailer. You have the heaviest amount of blood striking, stopping, and then there's a trailer that continues in the direction of whichever way the the liquid is flowing, you know. On those, they should theoretically be going all in the same direction. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately for, you know, anybody trying to hide it, the, the trailers all go in different directions, which really resembles somebody flicking blood up against the the door, door or the wallway, just to make make it look like there was some type of struggle going on. So the amount of blood upstairs and the the direction of the blood trailers are inconsistent with a the normal physics of that type of blood loss. The blood the drops of blood leading upstairs also are not consistent with elevated heart rate, which would pump more blood out. There should have been more blood. There was a lack of blood. Okay, so so just in those two areas, we have inconsistencies. So when we go downstairs, a lot of people don't know where the phone was, because I actually have a picture of the house when the phone was there. You get some blood, bloody uh fingerprints, a palm print. But where the blood is pooling in the corner only would suggest that say a person dragged themselves there. But the drag marks would be in one direction. One direction from the largest area of pooled blood in the the, uh, kitchen. And then it, there's an attempt to make it look like somebody's using their palms to support themselves going up the wall. However, down in the corner, if you look, really, you'll see an object. And what that object is is a toy. It's a truck. And on that truck, there are wheels. And if you look very closely at the, the wheels, and you'll need a pretty high-powered magnifying glass to do it, you'll see that there's three 
segment partitions in the wheel. And if you look again, you'll also notice that there's there's impact splatter down in the lower down in the lower uh, corner by the floorboard, which wouldn't be consistent with pooled blood, and then all of a sudden you have impact splatter within inches of where the pooling is. And the problem, if you look at the high impact splatter, there's probably maybe 30 to 40 um, splatters. Most of them don't have trailers, but there are eight individual three-section sets in a vertical line, which suggests that the toy, the tire of the toy was used to make the, the impact splatters. The only fingerprints found on the telephone. Now this is interesting. The fingerprints that were found, there was a bloody fingerprint found on this phone, and there were five to six additional prints. They're all from Martin Risch, her husband. However, it was confirmed that he was in New York that, at that time on a business business meeting. However, in one of the books Joan Risch was reading. It basically told you how to transfer a person's fingerprints. So there's no consistency there. The directions and the pooling of the blood on the floor in the kitchen are not consistent with a normal movement of liquid or an injured person. There's no footprints. Nobody walked through it. Nobody stepped in it. So the blood was purposely missed. Why? Well, certain people wear certain size shoes that could identify identify them. So there was a reason there that nothing was stepped on. Now, I'm not going to tell you what my, my theory is on it because you're probably getting the idea now anyway. So what were the other highlights in this uh, case? Well, one of the highlights in the case was the, the garbage the garbage can in the center of the floor with no blood on it. Okay. Here's the problem. The garbage can was kept under the sink. You never see a, a picture of the sink in anything online. I have pictures of the sink where the garbage can came from. And it's metallic white. There's absolutely no blood on there, which means it was taken out and placed on the floor. I'm not going to tell you as a prop, but it was placed in the center of the floor. Then there's these issues with the, the beer bottles in there. You know, like there was some, you know, it was an assault. People were drinking, yada, yada, yada. Um, that fact is easily disputed because anything with depth can be chronologically uh, stratified. The garbage can indicates that 
beer bottles were put in a garbage can either on the 19th or the 20th. And you may say, well, how do you know that? Because the night before, her husband, Martin Risch, said that Joan and her husband were drinking and he placed the liquor bottle in the garbage can. This is the 23rd, a day before Joan disappeared. So, the bottle was found on top of the beer cans or bottles, whatever they were, which suggests that if that was put there the 23rd, that the beer cans bottles were covered, were there prior to that. Okay, so there, there's there's one of the, the big ha-ha highlights that are um, that a lot of these podcasters use, and it's just just typical bullshit. Um, you know, they were there way before um, Rish, um, Martin Rish put the, the bottle in there. And the statement to, to the police during the investigation, Mr. Rich said that on that weekend prior to her disappearance, him and his friends were drinking beer. There you go again. Okay. We're, we're going to hit a three for three out of this one. So, but this is what I'm saying, buyer beware. A lot of these, a lot of these things that people that don't have an investigative knowledge look at, they try to attempt to use them as a highlight. You know, it kind of draws the suspense and the, the, the mystery around it. However, in totality, does the garbage can really mean anything? Besides a bloody phone receiver put on it, no, it doesn't mean anything. It has no significance, but it does have a significance. The significance was that it was specifically placed there prior to the event. Why? So that when the, <clears throat> the telephone receiver and the cord were put on it, it it made it appear that the phone cord was pulled out of the phone placed there. Basically what it was, it, it was a, a stage. Let's say a stage. A stage to put something on to draw attention away from what really happened. Or what they wanted you to assume, assume what was happening. If you look at the kitchen table, I mean not the kitchen table, excuse me, the, uh, the sink, which the sink doesn't appear on anything except for, I think, my book. You'll see to the right hand of the sink, there's a butcher block with probably about 10 really sharp knives in it. None of them were touched. None of the cabin cabinetry, which was metal, metallic white metal, going around at least 50% of the kitchen. No impact splatter, no blood stains, no anything. So... It was what I believe an attempt. It was, it was, it was an attempt. It was an attempt to create a false illusion of whatever illusion she wanted um, people to believe happened. Now everybody's. The, another thing is, well, the the phone book was turned to the emergency phone number section. Yes, but what the podcasts don't tell you and comes out 
in the police report was that the prior to the, the police being called at, at uh, 4.33 p.m., the house had been entered three or four times. I believe it was four times. Um, by uh, Barbara Barker. Three times. Who admits moving the desk that was flipped over, which had the phone book on it, so she could get access to the basement to see if Joan was down there. <coughs> she reports that she did not know what page the book was on and that it could have been just randomly landed on the emergency contact list page. Okay, so there's another big to do. Ha ha, you know, the suspense. Oh my God, it's got, no, it doesn't have it. Doesn't, it, it probably isn't, isn't pertinent to anything. And if the phone was ripped off the wall, why would she need a phone book? Okay. Now, another thing is, I don't know any murderer, kidnapper who is going to let their victim run from the kitchen upstairs or around the house. It doesn't happen that way. You know, either they kill you or they kidnap you. They don't let you run around the house. And then she was spotted, they say, twice on uh, Route 2A. And then uh, route, I believe it's 128, which is I-95 now, twice. That's incorrect. She was she was spotted five times. <clears throat> and um, she was in a, um, it wasn't so much the jacket that I focused on, although a lot of people assume that it was a jacket. She was spotted in a jacket. It was the white scarf that she had on. Why would she wear a white scarf? It stood out. It stood out. White stands out. Why would you want want to stand out if you were if you were staging your own crime? It draws attention away from you. It's confusion. All this blood. She's seen here. She's seen there. She's so so nobody has a clue what happened. Me, I'm not quite that stupid. I know exactly what happened. You know, um, this is a new era of law enforcement. You know, it's uh, we are different breeds of investigators. We're not the same as the who done it investigating uh, era of uh, law enforcement. At the same time, a blue station wagon was seen at two of her locations that she was seen at walking on these major highways. Well, if you total in about an hour and let's say 45 minutes from first sighting to last sighting, Joan had traveled, injured now, mind you, injured, bleeding and injured, on foot, 14.5 miles, physically impossible. Even a person in good shape cannot move 14 miles in under two hours. What does that mean? That means she was being driven and dropped off. What does that suggest? Suggest premeditation. Then they throw in this this other one. There was a uh, a mentally disturbed man. He's driving a blue car uh, on one of the side roads. 
seen going into the, the roads, collecting stick, sticks, brush, whatever have you. Here's a problem. He was observed twice within a two-hour span. The, the, the vehicle hadn't moved, which means if the vehicle hadn't moved, if the vehicle hadn't moved, then he hadn't moved. So he couldn't possibly be a suspect. Simple. It's simple. If he hadn't moved, the vehicle hadn't moved, he had nothing to do with it. Simple. Simple math. He doesn't move, but she's seen moving. Well, it's either one or the other. In this, in this case, you have the other. So if you look at the, the context of the case, now here's another one. There were there was an assumption that she had gone to a dentist appointment and that her dentist performed an illegal abortion. Well, the fact is there were four different witnesses in the in the uh, dentist office. I read all of her statements. She was there. She came in fine. She left fine. There was no blood found in the vehicle, which she drove back and forth to with. So, therefore, that aha factor is also thrown in the garbage because it's, it, it has no substance. It's just, just hearsay BS to, to cause a mystery or a thriller type environment so people are drawn to it. But in plain English is bullshit. So what about the blood stains on Joan Rich's car? Well think about it. If you look if you look really close at the blood stains on Joan Rich's car, the back part of the car or the side, they are not drip marks they are striations, or, or like somebody's dragging their finger across. So, well, what's, you know, so you might be saying, well, what's the significance of that? Well, people that are injured staggering around are not going to be drawing bloodlines on their car. Okay, second, if you look close enough, It wasn't a finger, probably, that made those lines. It was probably a piece of cloth, because if you look underneath each one of the destroyations, the dust on the car is gone. It was a dirt driveway. All the other car had dust on it, except for underneath the striations, which means somebody took a rag and slid it across the car to, 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 to create an effect that an injured person had walked by. Okay, so the farther we get into this, based on the actual facts, the story of the gone girl being gone as a victim is probably a 1% possibility. What they also don't tell you is that next-door neighbor saw the same type of small white car pull up in front of Joan Rich's house for about 20 minutes, three different occasions. Well, let me see. Joan's home alone. 
car pulls up for about 20 minutes. Well, let's guess what, what's going on there. We're not having a, we're, we're not selling brownies or cookies. You know what I mean? So I had talked to Saber Morton, who was uh, Joan's best friend. And I was listening to what she said, and then after I hung up with her, I was taking notes, um, I realized that Sabre had asked Joan if she was going to the, the June 1962 class reunion, and Joan said, no, I plan on being pregnant by then. Well, if you go from June back to October, that's nine months. So Joan had, Joan already was pregnant. And she planned on having the baby in June of that month. So how would she know this? Maybe her husband didn't know this. Maybe the person in the white car knew this. And a lot of people say, well, you know, a mother's going to leave the, her two kids, this and that. Listen, it happens every day. Women women leave their husbands, husbands leave their wives, leave kids behind. You know, that's, that's how it is, and that's how things happen. And to be so shocked about it, you know, I, I wouldn't be very shocked about it. Now, the coat, I'm just going to go back to the coat. And one of the books Joan read, and I know I should know it, and I can't off the top of my head because I've written so many books and read so many things I can't remember off the top of my head, specifically mentions the main character wearing a coat to distract people. Kind of fits, right? The book with the how to transfer fingerprints, the book how to wear a jacket to distract people kind of fits, the inconsistency of the crime scene. Even the chief of police at that time didn't believe that Joan Risch was a victim of a crime. And then, again, with the abortion thing, if you look on the top the hood of Joan's car, there's a metal coat hanger. Another aha factor. Well, here's the problem. Unless, and it's a complete, non-bent, non-altered coat hanger, if it wasn't manipulated, there would be no way it could fit fit into a woman's cervix to, you know, to perform a, an abortion. So there's another aha theory right in the garbage. So the more we get into this, the better understanding you have, you get an idea of what's really going on. You know, um, I hope none of these really believe that somebody came in there and killed her because or kidnapped her because that's there's nothing to substantiate any of that. You know, it's just um, and then then again we get back to the suspicious fire when she was ten years old and the podcasts and everybody looking for uh, people to view the to view their listen or view their podcasts or whatever infer that the fire was created because Joan Rich 
it was some type of retaliation for being sexually abused. Well, the fact of the matter is, Joan Rish had been sexually abused, but it wasn't until later in later years. Second, at the time of the fire, which killed her two parents, which was in an apartment, Joan Rish had been with her grandmother in uh, Brooklyn, New York. The fire marshal, and they say a suspicious fire, you know, you always see this in the podcast, suspicious fire, mysterious, isn't that nah, bullshit, it wasn't mysterious. The, the fire marshal in his, in his memos said that the fire was caused because the fuse in the fuse box had, had blown out and somebody had attempted to use a, uh, a copper penny to energize the line, which overheated the line, which overheated the fuse box in the living room which caught the sofa on fire, started a, not a large, but a good, uh, a medium-sized fire, and both parents died of smoke inhalation. No mystery to it, no aha factor, had nothing to do with the story, it's just another, you know, it's another one of those, oh, Bigfoot, Bigfoot snatch him type of, uh, you know, bullshit thing people throw into the, into the mix to, create, you know, create sales and, and all that kind of crap. So, was the was the gone girl really gone? Oh, she was gone. And then, let me just, let me just kind of, while I was just thinking of it, uh, in the Wikipedia, it says that uh, something about the Ozarks, the Ozark, you know, she escaped to the Ozarks and she, whatever the hell that shit it was. <clears throat> that had been started, that rumor had been started by a gentleman that was trying to buy Steve Ford, an individual that was trying to buy the rights to publish a book or write a movie about Joan Rush's disappearance. None of that was ever, none of those facts were ever substantiated. He was PO'd because the police department would not return, you know, hand him over the files. And he came up with, and a lot of the stuff is in the book. It's in the police files, but um, that's something that I'm not going to release. You know, I'll release some stuff, but not a lot. Um, You know, if you want a a real, real gist of what went on, you can buy the book. Amazon, The Disappearance of Joan Rich. Case 6162, and you can read from there. So, was the gone girl gone? Yeah, she was gone, all right, but she wasn't gone because she was a victim of a crime. She was gone because she didn't want to be there anymore, like a lot of people, leave and assume a new identity. And that's that's the, uh, the truth about the gone girl. The gone girl wasn't really gone. She was just almost good at staging things. I mean, most people believe her, but I just happened to be one of those guys that didn't. So until our next episode, I'll be talking to you then. Just remember, when you're in a dark parking lot, walking down a dark path in the woods, on a dark street or a dark alleyway, Just remember, you never know who's behind you and you never know what their intent might be.